We need to be brave enough to, to sit with ourselves and stop avoiding it because we'll go through our whole lives running. Welcome back or welcome to another episode of the Success Times Happiness Podcast. My name is Richard Thompson and our guest today is author and columnist Kerry Sackville. She has written a number of best-selling books. She's a columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Times. And the most recent book, which I fell in love with, is The Secret Life of You, How a Bit of Alone Time Can Change Your Life, Relationships, and Maybe the World. I hope you really enjoy this interview with Kerry. And uh, yeah, here we go. Kerry Sackville, thank you so much for coming on the show. Such a pleasure. You are an incredible author and columnist, and I thought I'd kick off today um, with asking what your morning routine looks like, given that your pro- your occupation is probably a bit of, a little bit left of centre. But what fires you up in the morning? What do you like to like to get done? I have a very specific morning routine that I have had for as long as I can remember, um, and it is basically Barocca Orange Coffee Walk. And that is like that every day. So on the weekdays, I wake up, I get dressed as soon as I get out of bed because otherwise I just won't. And I put on my exercise clothes and I go into the kitchen, I have a Barocca and then I sit down, I have my orange and I've been eating an orange first thing in the morning since I think I I read about how citrus (laughs) fruit was good to start off, kickstart your metabolism when I was about 14. And then I have a coffee either at home or if I'm at my partner's place, he'll make a coffee um, or we'll walk down and get a coffee at the cafe, mm-hmm. and then I do. I walk for about an hour, and I need that walk. And if I don't get that walk, I'm just wrecked for the day. So if it's too rainy or um, yeah, the weather doesn't allow it, I will literally go to my local Westfield and march around Westfield for an hour. I'm that crazy lady marching around <laughs> Westfield. <laughs> I love that. I love that as a morning routine. And yeah, you 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 find that if you don't tick those boxes, well, I guess the coffee and the orange and the barocca is all in within your control, but. If you don't tick the exercise, it I just don't. I, I don't feel okay. Like I really don't. And there's been a couple yeah. of times where something has happened, and I haven't been able to get my walk in in the morning. And then I get to like the middle of the day, and I feel terrible, and I realise, oh, I haven't had my walk. Um, and it's it's. Mm. I only started exercising properly about eight years ago. I was one of those people that was really proud of how I didn't exercise, and I didn't, you know, I, I didn't get the whole exercise thing. And I tried going to the gym, and that didn't work for me. And then I. I did this thing that I'd read about called temptation bundling. I actually wrote a column about it where I saved my favorite podcast for when I was walking and that encouraged me to just, because I I would only let myself listen to them when I was walking and I started walking 15 minutes a day and then half an hour and 45 minutes and now I can, I could probably walk for two hours if I had the time, but I, I always walk for at least an hour. Yeah. Awesome. 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 Now I came, uh, we, I reached out to you because I was stumb- I was walking uh, in my local shopping centre and came across <laughs> your incredible book, The Secret Life of You. Uh, this is last year, and we, I reached out to you just to say, I guess how how impressed I was and how amazing that book was. And if anyone hasn't read it yet, yeah, The Secret Life of You is just incredible. And that's what we're talking about today, which is essentially about embracing the idea of having alone time and solitude. Um, but before we kick off with that. And given the nature of the show, how do you, Kerry, define success and happiness in your life? So 
I think I'll start with happiness because it's something I, I've written about, I've thought a lot about. And for me, I don't really believe in happiness as a state of being. I think that people have all sorts of feelings and emotions constantly as the day goes on, as the week goes on. And so to me, happiness is having more of those positive feelings during the day than negative feelings. Um, so every day I'll have moments of joy, of satisfaction, of you know maybe a flash of feeling proud of myself, or you know taking great pleasure in you know a moment with my partner or one of the kids, feeling pride in my kids. Um, I try to aim for contentment as much as possible. I think that is a much more attainable thing than happiness as a state of being. Um, but I think you know I spend a lot of time thinking that oh, I should be happy all the time. And once I let go of that and realised that that there were just moments and there were good moments and bad moments and to focus more on trying to um, increase the number of good moments and get through the, the bad moments, I actually became much more content. So that is, that to me is happiness, like the good moments. And, you know, especially at times when life gets really hard and I've had many periods where life has been really hard, um, it, it it's it's something much more attainable to be able to focus on, okay, just keeping my eye out for those little fleeting moments of joy or pleasure during the day. And look, my my definition and my beliefs about success have also changed a huge amount during the years. I, I, I was brought up with very traditional ideas about what success meant, and it meant it, it was always academic. It was about career. It was about um, kind of recognition. And I've been around enough people in my life who are technically very successful at their jobs or financially or, um, you know, they've had accolades or whatever, who are really unhappy people. Um, and mm. so, you know, when you're very goal-oriented, and, and I was for a long time, and, and, you know, you move towards that goal and then you achieve that goal and then it's gone and you're left kind of starting again. And so that kind of moment of success is so fleeting and doesn't bring lasting contentment. Um, and so I've changed my definition now to, I guess, encompass more of what I was talking about in terms of happiness, which is to me, success these days is to have more of those moments of contentment, to to feel that my life is meaningful. Also, this is a really important one for me to to have emotional regulation. So to be an emotionally regulated person who can approach life, I guess, with resilience and emotional intelligence. And, and so when I meet people like that, I consider them to be successful. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really lovely answer, and I think I agree with you. You have to you have to question how successful someone is if they're dreadfully unhappy. Yeah. So there definitely needs to be that relationship, and how yeah, that's that's a really really lovely take. The secret life of you. Um, from what I've listened to other interviews of yourself, there seem to have been, and certainly I think you touched on in the book, this sort of moment through COVID in that period of time that led you through to this path of finding solace in, in solitude. What do you, can you recall like the crucible moment where you are like, okay, there's an, there's only so much scrolling that I can do and detachment that I can have with, with my own self. Yeah. Was there a moment where you're like, enough's enough? There, there literally was. So I was locked down in an apartment. Um, you know, I love my apartment, but with four people in it full time, you know, I'm, I'm divorced. Um, I wasn't in a relationship then. I'd been single for a long time. Uh, I had two young adult kids living at home who were both incredibly unhappy. 
um, COVID was really rough on on young adults. You know, um, my my middle child had literally just left yeah. school and was flung into online uni, missed the entire uni experience for two years. Um, my youngest was coping much better, but she was doing schooling online. So all three of us, I lost nearly all my work because the media crashed and burned once once advertising was, you know, once that took a hit because of COVID. Um, I had a whole lot of health problems. I've got an ongoing autoimmune disorder, which just flared up in, in 2020. And I was really at, at, at once incredibly isolated and lonely because I couldn't see my friends. I couldn't walk to my Westfield, you know, and, and walk around there. Um, but I was also surrounded by my kids all the time. And so I had this weird thing of, of being lonely, but also never actually physically alone. And I just found myself honestly scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I was always very online for my work, but I'd always managed to mm. kind of focus on, on you know, building my profile as I tried to do and, and scouring the internet for ideas for columns. But I got caught into really unhealthy cycles of just spending hours in these Instagram loops and, and you know, stuff that was not enhancing my life at all. And I just felt more and more disconnected, more and more lonely, more and more unhappy. And I came to a point where I literally froze this kind of mid, mid scroll and was like, what am I doing? And I decided to just stop and put down my phone and properly put down my phone and turn it off. And I didn't need to have it on. All my kids were in the house. I didn't need it for emergencies. And sit with myself and, and see what happened. And it was really hard. I'd been running from a lot of things for a long time. Um, it's it's very hard, for example, to be a single person in our culture, and that was a really tough thing. Um, and you know, I felt a great sense of failure, and, and I, I felt a lot of social stigma. And then there was dealing with the unhappiness about not being particularly healthy at that point in time, and my worry about my kids, and my worry about my career. And I sat with it all, and I started going for long walks without my phone, which was a new thing for me because I'd always, as I said earlier, I'd always walked with podcasts on. Um, yeah. And I, over a period of time, I started to feel better. And then I started researching the benefits of solitude and I learned so much. And I decided I just had to had to write all this and book came out. This is that. the journey. It was really, this is the journey. I hate, yeah, I hate the word yeah. journey, but it was a journey and it was incredibly transformative. And once you realize that something is mm. so beneficial and has changed your life and you see other people, you know, making the mistakes that you made, um, you just want to tell everybody. And so that's mm. that's why I wrote the book. I started proselytizing. You know, I, di I didn't want to be that person, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> Author John Graves um, said, a crowded world thinks that aloneness is always loneliness and that to seek it is perversion. Kerry, how do you think we reframe solitude so to avoid that stigma? It's so interesting because when I started to tell people that I was writing a book on solitude, the response was always, oh, you're writing a book on loneliness. Yeah, it was very hard to um, decouple the, those two ideas in people's heads. It was fascinating that, that everybody believes that. And in fact, solitude is the opposite of loneliness. Loneliness is the gap between the connection that we desire and the connection that we feel at any given time. So, of course, loneliness has nothing to do with the company you're in. You can be lonely in a crowd of people. You can be perfectly content by yourself. But solitude is feeling mm. connected to yourself. Uh, and our culture doesn't value solitude. And, in fact, 
um, it's it's quite a recent thing that we don't. You know, up until very recently, um, and certainly before social media, you know, it was quite a normal thing for people, particularly artists, writers, composers, to go off and spend time alone. You know, the the kind of the famous cabin in the woods scenario, and everyone would say, oh, you know, wow, this is wonderful. We'll support you. Go go off and make your art. And now, if I said to someone, I'm going off for six weeks to a cabin in the woods, they'd, they'd, you know, want me to get a mental health assessment first. (laughs) Yeah, Um, for sure. So this whole book is about trying to reframe the concept of solitude and and help people to see that it is actually um, something that is so fundamental to our well-being and to our capacity to have healthy relationships and, you know, for creativity and just to be um, whole people with a sense of, of self and identity and and I think it's incredibly unfortunate that our culture doesn't value it. And I hope that my book goes just a little way to to redressing that. Yeah, I think you're like spot on, right? In the sense that if you said I'm going to the movies by myself or I'm going to the restaurant to have a meal by myself, it, people would be like, hey, is everything okay? Right? You know like it's a it's not a positive uh, position to, to play in. But. There, are, there are literally TikTok videos where people go and give flowers to the sad person sitting at the table um, by themselves at a restaurant when that person is often perfectly yeah. happy. Yeah. It's just this construction of, of how tragic mm. it is to be alone, which is so wrong and unfortunate. Mm. You wrote, and I'll, I'll quote here, you cannot possibly make another person happy if you have no idea what makes them tick. You cannot know that another person wants or needs without spending time with them and paying attention to how they behave. And yet what is true for others is equally true for ourselves. You cannot live your best life and seek happiness and contentment if you don't understand who you are. I loved that, right? And it it goes to that. And I guess the place of solitude, the place of finding time for yourself is discovering that of who we are. And as we, and as, you know, we discussed life evolves we go through trauma we go through experiences and we are not the same person i heard a really lovely quote about that you walk through a river and then you walk through it again but it's not the same river nor is it the same nor are you the same person because it's not the same body of water and you have changed yourself right and so what does it mean to spend time by yourself and and i guess what other what forms could it look like yeah so I find it really interesting when people say things like, oh, I found myself, you know, in my 20s, I went and I, I you know, like I, I went on a trip and I found myself. And it's like, well, you might have found yourself in your 20s, but we change constantly, as you said, and we evolve constantly mm. in the different experiences and relationships and, and you know, work events change us and, and just life changes us. And and we need to be constantly checking in with ourselves and, and discovering who, who we are at every stage of life. And so to me, spending time with yourself means things like asking yourself what you believe before you ask other people, right? So that's that's one thing. Um, I think so many of us, particularly women, but I think all of us, um, particularly because we're so connected all the time, will kind of defer to the internet or to friends or to family to, dis- to determine what they think about it, anything. So just a little example like seeing mm. a movie, and you turn to the person next to you and go, what did you think of that? Before you take any time to actually contemplate it yourself or go straight on to reviews and work out what you're supposed to think about something. So it's it's working, <laughs> yeah, out, sure. yeah, working out what your opinions are. I mean, I make it a rule when I see a movie or read a book, 
I will sit afterwards and actually spend some time thinking about it and try to determine what I believe about it and what my opinion is before I read any reviews. And then I'm really interested to read the reviews and see what other people say. And often it's similar and I go, oh, I was right. Um, Which, of course, is ridiculous. It's not right or wrong. It's an opinion. Um, And sometimes I'll be like, oh, I didn't didn't think of that. Um, So it's also spending time in your own thoughts, um, in your own memories, I talk a lot and I write about thinking for pleasure and I think that a lot of us are running from our thoughts. You know, there's a lot of reasons we, we kind of avoid being being with ourselves, but a lot of us run from our thoughts because we, we're afraid of what's in there. We're afraid of what's inside our heads and we're very used to using our minds to conjure up worst case scenarios or to go through the catalogue of everything we've ever done wrong or to, um, you know, worry about what's going to go wrong in the future. And we can actually trawl through our memories and spend time dwelling on happy memories or things we've enjoyed or things that bring us joy. So I, I've i actually done it for as long as I can remember. I will, I'm, I'm a big reader and I've got a good sort of visual memory and I will literally reread passages and books in my head when I'm bored or when I'm trying to fall asleep or in the car. And I'm sure I get them wrong, I get the quotes wrong, but I can literally go through things in my head and, and replay them. I'll replay movie scenes in my head I'll listen to songs in my head. And, you know, we've all got the capacity to go into ourselves and and um, spend time with, you know, to entertain ourselves. We've all got, um, you know, memories and, and thoughts and feelings and, and um, you know, things we've seen and done to entertain ourselves when we're alone. Um, so that's another an, another way that, that you can actually spend time with yourself. And, and the third that I'll mention is, is actually talking to yourself like you would talk to a friend. And I do that a lot. Um, I sometimes do it out loud. Usually it's in my head where I will literally ask myself questions and answer them like I would talking to you. So I'll say, oh, what did you think about that? Why do you think mm. you did that? Um, how, like, what are you wanting to do this week? What, you know, what do you feel like eating? <laughs> Why do you reckon she said that? Um, and it's really strange because... When you ask yourself specific questions, you can actually be really surprised by the answer. Even though you're the one posing the question, it's sort of like you divide yourself up into interviewer and interviewee. And I can ask myself questions Mm. um, and go, oh, wow, I didn't realize that's how I felt. So I often do that again when I'm driving. I'll just kind of chat to myself either out loud or in my head. and, And I'm, you know, I'm an interesting person. We're all an interesting person and and we all... We, we often don't give ourselves the kind of show towards ourselves, the curiosity that we show towards other people in our lives. And we're the ones we should be most curious about because we're stuck with ourselves forever. Other people come and go, but we are stuck mm. with this person and we may as well get to know them. Yeah, I think I think the the cut through here or the takeaway would, would be to somehow separate yourself from you, I guess, right? And if that means, and that, that allows you to have those conversations or treat yourself the way that you would treat someone that you actually cared about. Yeah. I also think there's a double-edged sword there, which I'd love to unpack because I like the, personally speaking, for so long, I struggled just to sit with myself. And I think we're going into this, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, we have the ability to, um, distract ourselves more than as easily as we can possibly be right um so but when you think about the person that is you as you said you it's the only person you you're you're with for your entire life 
friends come and go, partners come and go, family move up, grow old, move out, um, work changes, but the constant, the, the constant is, is your presence within yourself. But also with that is that you've got to be able to bear and you are the only one that knows all of the failures, <laughs> all of the lies you've told yourself, like I'm going to go to the gym, I'm going to eat healthy and then you're eating a donut or, you know, every little micro promises and, and failures that the world doesn't see, but you know. And so there is that element of like, yeah, I, I'm okay, but God, I've got some baggage here and it's that has to be pretty confronting you would think yeah and and i think that's i mean you've hit the nail on the head that is why people including myself avoid spending time with with themselves and that's why i was distracting myself so much you know back in 2020 and before that because there was so much pain and so much regret um and so much fear mm. for me um and it was really really hard to sit with that and i think that most people go through life, their lives like desperately trying to avoid sitting with their painful emotions. We are not taught how to do that. Like we're, we're taught, I mean, even as parents, we sort of do it with our kids and I've changed how I approach my kids now when they're in pain and I'm in emotional pain. You know, I would, it's like your kid falls over and scrapes their knee and you're like, you're okay, you're okay. And I would sort of do that with emotional pain as well. You know, they'll come to me and feel sad and I'll be like, oh, well, you know, we can fix this or this will this will be okay or you're going to get through instead of sitting and going, wow. We will, we will, we will fix it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is really hard. I'm, you know, I I understand how painful that is and just, you know, we're not good at sitting with other people when they're in, in pain. You know, when, when my sister died when she yeah. was 37 and I was 39 and people just, I had people avoid me on the street because I just didn't know how to be around someone who was grieving. Um, and it's really hard to do it with ourselves. But what I have found is that when we are brave enough to actually sit with those feelings of pain, regret, shame, fear, they, it's the only way to get through them. They actually pass. Like we, we are scared that we're just going to be engulfed by them and it's never going to go away. But feelings, like I was sort of saying earlier in re response in regard to happiness, you know, you have a really painful feeling. Even the most intense grief um, comes in waves and you feel a wave of, of grief and then, you know, the wave recedes and you feel okay again. And it's the same with shame and it's the same with, with regret and all, all those other negative emotions. But if we avoid them, we never, ever look into them and mm. so we can't possibly move through them. Um, now, obviously, there are people who, who really aren't safe to be alone with their thoughts and I, you know, I make that clear in the book and... And in fact, when I started writing the book, I, I was very much on that everybody needs to, you know, spend time alone. And then I interviewed a man who suffered from severe mental health issues and, and he explained to me, and I was really grateful for that, that when he's in the throes of a mental health crisis, he's just not safe to be alone. Um, and certainly if you're deeply depressed or you're suicidal sure. or you're having, you know, a severe anxiety attack, then you're not safe to be alone. Um, and I think everybody can benefit from therapy. But... For most of us who aren't in a mental health crisis, if we are, allow ourselves to sit with our negative emotions, they will pass. We will get through them um, and move to the other side. And the more you look at, at all those emotions in the face, the more they start to recede. So, you know, I was reading the other day about um, rejection therapy. So people who are scared of rejection will go out and just 
make sure that they're rejected, you know, 10, 15 times a day in different ways, either asking for a loan from a stranger or asking someone for a date. Oh, sure. And eventually the the horrible feeling associated like, with it. Like exp- exposure up. therapy almost. Yeah, and it's the same with all of our negative feelings. Yeah. But yeah. we need to be brave enough to, to sit with ourselves and stop avoiding it because we'll go through our whole lives running. Is it a matter of... When you go, when you accept that bravery, or you, you go, okay, I'm going to put my big boy pants on and and t- take on that burden of my life failures and yeah. what I know of. Is it how can we? How can you encourage someone to be more forgiving I think, of themselves? Yeah, I think with with dealing with that. I think it's about it's a, again what I said earlier. It's about showing you know I said show ourselves the same curiosity that we show other people but we also have to show ourselves the same compassion and and forgiveness and something that I've been doing for a while you know I didn't mention journaling before journaling is also a really good way to spend time with your thoughts um and putting things down on paper is a really really or, or on the screen wherever into your phone is a really good way of helping you to see them in perspective because for most of us the things that we are most ashamed of the things that we most regret um, the things that that we feel, you know, um, most embarrassed about. If somebody else was sharing that experience, we would say, "Hey, this is okay. Like, this is not so bad. You know, you are allowed to mm-hmm. forgive yourself." We would forgive other people for that. And so, I think trying to show up ourselves the same compassion that we show other people. And one way that I found to do that, which is a really practical way, is I write down what I'm feeling. And I write it down in the first person. So I say, look, I, I feel really terrible because I yelled at my daughter this morning and I feel like I've destroyed her life and I feel like I've emotionally damaged her. And I wish, I'd... and I write it down and then I wait and then I go back and I change it all um, to the third person. So, you know, I'll change my name. Like Sally felt really bad because she yelled at her daughter in the morning and she decided that she'd ruined her daughter's life. And then I leave it and I come back to it and I read it. And I'm like, Really? Like if I was reading somebody else, you know, I'm reading about Sally, it's not such a big deal. Okay, Sally yelled at her teenage daughter. It's not like everybody yells at their teenage daughter. And I can forgive myself. I can I can give myself that distance. Um, I can get out of my own head. And so I found that that is a really useful technique. Um, and to understand, and I, I do appreciate this now, it's taken me a long time, but I understand at a very deep level, we are all human and we are all fallible. Everyone is fallible. Um, and there is no perfect person. There is no perfect relationship. There's no perfect parent. There's no perfect employee. Um, why do we expect higher standards of ourselves than we do of other people? Yeah, or why are we so critical of ourselves um, on that basis yeah. rather than just to be accepting that we are fallible and mistakes or, you know, we're not perfect, that's for sure. And I think I think it's a fairly, it's a fairly common CBT therapy cognitive behavioural therapy about um, you're looking at the problem in third person, which is why I said at the start, like I think it's a, a really great takeaway to look, to talk to yourself either in like ex- expressly or, or internally and sort of detach a little bit away because you can, if you looked at the problem and you're giving advice to that person that you actually cared about, like in your instance, Sally, who yelled at her child, yeah. You'd be really compassionate, and yeah. you'd be giving that advice of going, "Yeah, look, that's okay. You've had a rough morning. It's fine. Um, maybe you know." And then, <clears throat> and you'd, you'd just 
you'd, you'd bring a lot more softness to it than you would to yourself. Yeah. Which is, um, which I think is a really interesting, interesting takeaway from the exercise. And, and the fact that we are all deserving of love and compassion just because we're human beings is another thing. You know, we don't need yeah. to be perfect. We don't need to, to have achieved any particular um, goals or, or yeah, outcomes to be worthy of love and compassion. I, th- I really, truly believe, and again, it took me a while to understand this, but we are all worthy of compassion and love just because we exist. And the world is a hard place. And just to survive it sometimes is enough, I think. Yeah. Do you think the difficulty there is the self-love? Like you say that we're all deserving of love, but surely the the genesis of that is going, well, like how, how, what is the relationship in your mind in terms of your ability to love yourself unconditionally, right? Which is what we're talking about, being able to say, no matter what, all of the slings and arrows that I've endured in my life, uh, I still love myself and can show that in a number of different ways versus being the capacity to actually love another human being. I think, I think self-love is always ideal, but I think that that is um, an incredibly difficult thing to strive to achieve. Like how do you, how, how can you um, set that up as a goal? I want to love myself. So what I think is much more attainable and tangible is to learn to feel comfortable with yourself. Um, and to me, that means being able to sit with yourself, um, being able to tolerate those difficult emotions and treating yourself, I think, with the compassion and and the kindness that you would treat somebody else. And I think ultimately self-love comes from that. Um, it is something that grows out of that. But you start with the actions. And, and one quote that I really love, I'll probably get it wrong, but it, it's I think it was M. Scott Peck who said, love is... is um, not emotional. Love is love is volitional, not emotional. Like love is is um, is now what was it? Extending yourself for the benefit. Sorry, extending oneself for the benefit of one's own or another's spiritual growth. So the person who truly loves acts in a loving way, whether or not the loving feeling is present. So I think acting as if you care about yourself by um, trying to talk to yourself in a compassionate way by sitting with yourself. From there, the love follows but to try and say I need to love myself is really hard so you can act loving towards another human being without necessarily feeling those feelings of love and in fact every parent knows that there are times when you don't feel that loving feeling if your kid is really annoying or you're exhausted or you know you've been up all night you may not feel that warm rush of love but you act in a loving way anyway you act as if as if you do and that is the true love I love that I really really do that yeah um Moving to the ideas of like big, big life decisions or just strong, important decisions or crossroads that we're at. I found a quote of an American four-star Marine Corps General, Secretary of State, or Secretary of Defense, I think, James Mattis. And he said, if I was to sum up the biggest single problem of senior leadership in this information age, it's a lack of reflection. We need solitude to refocus on, persp- on perspective decision-making rather than just reacting to problems as they arise. Oh, God, yes. What do you do, Carrie, now, knowing what you've experienced, the journey you've been on, when clarity is needed? I know you touched on sitting after a movie and figuring out what where, you, where your truth is in terms of your opinions about that. But when you are coming to moments of big decisions, 
where do you turn? How do you how do you get through that? I just I think that quote is spot on, and I think one of the biggest problems we're facing at the moment as a society is this whole idea of groupthink and people getting caught up in in causes and in beliefs and in conspiracy theories and in and in extremist kind of notions that they don't even necessarily believe in. Like, um, you know, if you if you learn anything about conspiracy theories, it's that a lot of people, when asked to explain them, don't even understand them. There's no logic behind them. They're just caught up in what other people think. And it is so hard to step back from that, particularly in this in the age that we live in of constant connection. And it is so easy for me if I have a decision to make to just text a friend or text my, you know, WhatsApp group where I've got, you know, sometimes, you know, 20, 30 people in a WhatsApp group that I can ask um, for their opinion. Or I can go on online and look up pros and cons. God, you can ask ChatGPT what you should do. And so for me, what I really try and do is, is recognise that other people's opinions are not my truth and that's really hard with some people in my life because you sort of you you internalize other people's opinions so that for example I don't I don't need to ask my parents what they think about something that I'm considering doing I know what they're going to say um I know what my best friend is going to say I know what my partner's going to say mm. so but those voices are there in my head anyway and it sometimes it's really hard to detach that and it is really a question of of refusing to engage with those other voices and trying to um, get inside your own head, which is which is difficult. And I tend to do that, you know, because I'm a writer, I tend to do a lot of writing. I do do a lot of journaling. But also, as I said, I talk to myself and I, I literally interview myself. And so if I've got a big decision to make, which I actually did recently, I was offered a work opportunity um, that I decided in the end was, was not right for me. But it took quite a, a bit of reflection because it was lucrative and um, it would have been fairly easy, but it just was not the right, job for me for for lots of reasons just a just a writing gig but I really had to I know that there were people who would have been like absolutely do it just for the money or mm. other people who were like absolutely not that's you know that's compromising yourself and I had to really sit and ask myself questions um, honestly I, I imagine scenarios like this like I imagine being interviewed by someone who's saying to me right Kerry so so you know what would you think if if you know how, how do you feel about working in this job but how do you feel about this feedback and I and I answer and I discover things about myself. But it's I think the best start is to just resist the urge to outsource to other people because it is too easy to do that. Um and the harder option yeah. is to turn to ourselves first. You can ask somebody else later on if you want, but first stop always has to be you. It's an interesting habit as well, I would imagine, whereby you get to a difficult decision and it'd be interesting to see how quickly you react to that decision that needs to be made to outsourcing that, getting that advice, rather than just stopping and going, hang on, where do I sit with this? And as you said, we're we're constantly evolving, we're constantly changing. So our position about a certain decision may be different a year ago, three years ago, 10 years ago. And so, but if you're not constantly, or at least at that moment, sitting with yourself and saying, how, what is my truth here? What, what where do I, what, how do I want to answer this or yeah. which direction should I go before seeking advice to people in your close circle, then you're not, you have no idea, yeah. right? You have, you have very little understanding of where you sit and how you make those decisions. I will also say, I think that it's really important also to get in touch with 
gut feeling and you know gut feelings are, are mm. tell us so much and I learned this when I was on the dating scene for like eight and a half years and I would meet someone and have a really strong gut feeling this you know this doesn't feel right but then my friends would be in my ears saying saying oh he seems great and mm. and I think it is so important to honor our gut feelings and I think that again the culture that we live in gets us further and further away from our gut feelings. And I think that we all, you know, if you read Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, you know, he talks about how we have so much information just from walking into a room, um, you know, before our brains even process, we, like our, our eyes and, and um, our guts tell us so much about, about a situation. And I think it, we need to learn to pay attention to our gut feelings because I think for most of us, they, they will keep us safe. I think whenever I've got against that it's been at my peril and um you just have to back yourself right you got to back that gut feeling and go no that's that's a strong feeling uh, whichever which way you want to go and you can definitely argue obviously whichever direction you could have argue, you know convinced yourself that taking that deal um was was something you should do but if that's going against your gut feeling and being really truthful to yourself to go that is that is the gut feeling rather than diminishing that or trying to excuse that, um, I think is a real step as well. In the book, you mentioned about the desire for us to be better people, to enrich the relationships that we have, right? So the motivation being, I wanna be a better person to enrich those connections with the inner circle that I have. You referenced Stephanie Dowick's book, yeah. um, and, and the idea being that without a strong sense of self, you're at risk. You're at risk of seeing others for what they can do for you, rather than appreciating for appreciating them for who they actually are—a human person with feelings, yeah. thoughts, needs. Why do you think solitude can lead to such sort of empathy and compassion for others? I think there's there's a couple of reasons, but I think when we are scared of being alone, we lose perspective on on other people because we are using other people to fill kind of a, a gap in ourselves um so the person who's scared of being alone is not going to make great decisions about relationships and when they approach relationships um they are not going to be um seeing that person um in their in their entirety for who they are they'll be seeing them as, oh, this is company for me. Does, does that make sense? It's, it's kind of a tricky concept. Mm. So it's... Yeah. That, no, no, no. That, 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 person, that person is filling, filling a void for me and solving my problem rather than seeing the person for who they are yeah. and being able to embrace that experience yeah. because of the person that they are. So imagine, you know, you, you get a delicious meal, but you are so ravenous, you just wolf it down and all you can think of is that that is satisfying your hunger. You don't actually get to sit and savour the meal. So it's sort of similar to that in that if we are so needy, we'll be using other people to fill mm. ourselves and we won't actually be able to sit back and appreciate who they are. So when we feel comfortable alone, when we are okay in ourselves, we can then approach people from a position of, I guess, fullness and strength and, and satisfaction and be able to engage with them. And when we're not needy, we can see them more clearly and then we can be there for them as well. So we can we can um, actually properly hear them and see them. And, and you know, in a different sense, it also, it prevents enmeshment because 
especially in romantic relationships or parent-child relationships, you know, when you don't have a strong sense of self, it's very hard to see the boundaries between where you end and the other person you're very close to begins. And you bring so much more to a relationship and you can appreciate so much more in another person when you feel whole by yourself. Um, so that's why enmeshed relationships are so unhealthy because it's not two people coming together and and becoming greater than, you know, that they form a relationship that that adds to both of their lives and enhances them both. It's two people coming together and almost being lesser than. And then I, I think finally, yeah. when we are when we are okay in ourselves, we and we have a true sense of of who we are, it enables us to feel liked and appreciated and loved for who we are. Because like what what do we all want from our relationships, from our friendships, from our family, from our partners? We want them to to love us for who we are, right? That's the feeling we're all wanting. And that is where true connection comes from. It's that sense of you see me, I see you. But if we have no idea who we are, like if I don't know who I am and I, I um am sort of constantly mm. avoiding myself and have very um, you know very vague sense of who I am as a person, how am I ever going to say, oh right, Richard is actually seeing me. Like, I, I feel seen by you if I don't know who that person is. Um, so the more we know each other, the you more- You can't we... even see yourself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, it, it enhances it enhances our relationships yeah. and it just, yeah. on a very practical sense, makes it so much bit easier for us to see those people who are going to be good friends or partners to us um, and to choose people um, who are going to be- for us and I you know again on the dating scene you see it all the time is people who are so frightened of being alone that they would just jump into a relationship with the first person who comes along um and when you do that of course you end up having really mm. first of all you have really poor relationships but second or, or you know even just inadequate relationships but also then you're not available for when that right person does come along um and you know ha- being okay on your own gives you yeah. the, the capacity to then Meet someone at a time when it, you know, where, where you meet the person who's going to enhance your life rather than, I guess, save save you from loneliness and fear. And I, I think you're spot on. I think that when you are going into that relationship as, let's say, something that you have a void that you feel like it that needs to be filled, usually that's because you're not spending enough time solving that void for yourself. And so, and that, and then, then as we discussed, it is discomfort. It is uncomfortable going down that exercise, but but in principle worthwhile. And um, if you can be comfortable in who you are, and be and be as whole as you can, you get to that place of finding someone in that same position. And as you said, you're enriching each other's lives. It's not that you would be. You want still to have a, a, a happier life together than, than apart, but you don't want to be unhappy because you're not with that person in the first place, right? And so I think there's a lot of that. There's a lot, of, there's a lot in that in being able to be brave enough to go through your own experiences, you go through that time to, with yourself before you're ready to be able to, to find that person. The other side of that coin is that when we are really needy, when we are feeling... Um, you know, not not whole, not okay with ourselves, and we're expecting other people to, um, I guess, fill that void mm. for us. It's inevitably going to lead to a sense of loneliness because 
no other person in the world is is exactly like like me and there's no other person in the world exactly like you and we can't possibly expect somebody else to be able to meet all our needs all the time. And so the the more comfortable we are with ourselves, the more of a sense of self we have, the more we're able to comfort and soothe um, and nurture ourselves, the less um, frantically we're going to be needing to get get you know all, all those things from another person. Right. And so again, the more we're going to be able to meet them at the level they're at. Yeah, and and that and that as a result of that, that provides value to yourself, like the self value of who you are and the two feet you have standing on the ground. That it's like, well, if I'm not getting that emotional need or that that box ticked at this present moment with the person that I love, that's okay because I'm okay with who I am. And then we, you're in a much more secure place than being needy, than being left at a, in a state of lack for the majority of your life, right? Exactly. How do we start this, Kerry? So someone who isn't, let's say someone listening who hasn't or is reluctant to break down those walls and just to sit with themselves. And I mean, meditation is obviously a, a form of, of being in solitude, but not the only form of being in solitude. Where can people start small? What's the low-hanging fruit that, that we can take away here? I think the the biggest takeaway message is that I'm not saying you have to go now and immediately like go to a silent retreat or spend, you know, three hours a day just sitting with your thoughts. Like that can be really confronting and difficult for people who've never, ever been um, undistracted. So I think a really good place to start is just with those like incidental moments of solitude that I used to have all the time. Like we all used to have all the time. I mean, I grew up yeah, I was a child of the 70s and 80s. And if I was in my bedroom at night, I was alone mm. with my thoughts. There was no phone in my room. There was no TV in my room. I think I, I like I got a clock radio when I was, I think, a teenager. <laughs> um, and if I was walking to school in the morning or if I was on the train going to the city, I was yeah. alone. And what happens now, of course, is that the second we're alone, we, you know, look at our phones or pop on headphones. So I would say to people, just start by when you go for your walk, if you if you walk or when you go for your run or whatever, try doing it without devices. Listening to yep. music. Um, if you are yeah, if you are pottering around your kitchen, if you are doing the household chores, um, if you're driving, you've just dropped your kids off at school and you're driving back home, just try being in mm. silence. Um, for a lot of people, the only time they're ever properly alone is in the, in shower. the shower. Which is why the shower is just such a place of creativity. Yeah, right. You know, people say, "Oh, I get my best ideas in the shower." Why is that? It's because it's the one place where they're not yeah, on the phones. Um, so start with those. Yeah, start with those moments. Um, and if you then become more comfortable with that, then you can expand it um, and have longer periods of time. And also, I think journaling is a really is a really useful tool. Um, even if you journal for a few minutes a day, it just forces you to sit and just be alone with yourself. And it is incredibly cathartic putting your thoughts and feelings and fears um, down, you know, into words onto a document. Um, and it really does put them in perspective when you can see them written back and and realise also when you read back your journal in a week's time, a month's time, a year's time, almost, you know, you're almost always going to feel differently. You, the things that you're worried about almost never transpire. And when they do, you've coped with them, you've managed them. So it's it's like a really useful Yeah, tool. definitely. But mainly just to get in touch with yourself. It definitely disempowers those feelings, those big, big feelings, right? When you can articulate them into words, then it's like, well, it's just this. It's just those words. And 
I think I agree with you. I think journaling is is the absolute. Oh, it's just so magic when it comes to dealing with those big emotions. Um, also with the screen thing, which I think is interesting and something that sort of um, is a great metric. Everyone talks about screen time and the screen time thing I think is a little bit misleading. What's really, I think, um, confronting is how many times you unlock your phone of a day. And that yeah. is sort of like... And when you get more aware of it, that's when it becomes even more scary because it's like, all right, as soon as you said, as soon as you have that moment, like people go to a red light and they then pull it on the driving and then hit the red, they start stop at the intersection at a red light, they'll pull out their phone just to, because God forbid it's 15 seconds where you just have to sit and be present. And so if you can measure how many times you unlock your phone in a day, that is a scary metric. And if you can then be more intentional with that and go, so you can spend two hours on, you know, sort of binge if you really want to binge your time on the phone, but it's that inability, that awareness of, well, at any little moment of life, you're standing in line to go to the, I don't know what people stand in line to go to these days, to pay for the groceries. You pull out your phone <laughs> or even like, even at the cafe, right? And you're with someone and you're having a lovely, mo lovely company and they go to the toilet. You, you know, you just, people's instant reaction is to pull out the phone because again, God forbid, they just sit there in their own thoughts at a cafe. But, yeah. but that metric I found for me, maybe two years ago, I was like, whoa, that, this is a lot of unlocking because a lot of moments where I could just go, I don't need my phone right now. It's not ringing. It's, uh, you know, I'm just filling in that void. Yeah. And to your point is if you embrace that bit, yeah. if you embrace that time of actually I'm going to intentionally use this to sit with myself, then you're going to be in a better place rather than wasting that opportunity, right? My children often talk to me about being bored and I laugh at that because, as you said, we often just had to go in our rooms and entertain ourselves. How do we address this with the kids? How do we encourage them in, a, in their world of being, you know, the idea of sitting in a five-minute block of commercials waiting for the program to come back is so foreign to them. It's like <laughs> instant, right? I, I'm sick of this show. I want a new show. And then all of a sudden that show is on. How do we encourage them to spend that time with themselves um, growing up as, as children? I think there's a couple of things. I think the first thing we have to recognise is how pervasive and addictive this technology is. And it's it's a huge, huge problem. It's a huge battle for parents. And I think we are only now just starting to see the ramifications. And I think there's going to be a lot of ramifications for kids. I mean, I can tell you, I've got, my two eldest kids are 24 and 22. Um, they're six and a half and eight and a half years older than their next sibling and she just turned 16 and the difference between how they use their phones is yeah, extraordinary okay. my big kids can put down their phones and they often are hard to contact because they just don't have their phones mm. with them and even just in those few years the culture completely changed that's when you know tiktok and and instagram stories and reels was um invented and snapchat and all that yep. um became much more prevalent and my 16 year old is glued to her phone and if i had known what I know now, I would have delayed letting mm. her get a phone. Um, and when I see parents, and, and I've got three kids, I know what it's like to be a parent of a toddler. Um, my third in particular would not stay in her pram. It was a nightmare. Um, but if you can delay giving them phones and iPads early, 
um, mm. please, like I would say, please do, delay as long <laughs> yeah, as possible sure. because kids, because it creates, you know, the fact that we have this technology means that alone time has become a problem to be solved and boredom has become a problem to be solved. And kids are naturally pretty good at being alone with their thoughts until we start giving them technology. So when my mm. kids were, were like, when my big kids were little, we didn't have, we, they didn't have access to phones or iPads and they, I would take, you know, colouring books and toys and stuff for them to entertain themselves when we were at dinner or in a waiting room or whatever. Um, my little one, just I would give her a phone. And the result is that she is now hooked on her phone. So the first thing I would say is, is hold out as long as possible. And I know that's really hard. And I'm not, I'm not blaming parents who resort to technology because we can do what we need to do to survive, but if you mm. can. And the other thing is that the best thing I found with kids and boredom is um, – to give them chores and you say, right, you're bored, great. Well, you can come <laughs> and, and you know, empty the rubbish bin and you can mop the floor. And it is amazing how quickly they find something to do. <laughs> I love that. I'm, like I'm definitely using that. Yeah, if you're bored, yeah, yeah, let's let's vacuum the floor. Um, that'll that'll give you something to do. Literally. Um, Clean your room. Yeah, yeah. Oh, don't get me started on that. Um now, in the middle of the chaos of life, and as you said, you've gone through a lot in your own um, in your own journey. How how do we create when there's so many needs from other people, right? So many balls in the air, so many responsibilities that we have. How do you, Kerry, create discipline? So I guess to put the proverbial oxygen mask over your over you first before you help others. Is it tied up in the morning routine and the orange and the barocca, or do you do you <laughs> are you are you really self aware of that you need to put yourself first and then you can be the best version for others? I have I have um, a lot of people around me who require mm. a lot of attention at different times, um, and it's it can be really exhausting. Um, you know, I've been a single parent for a long time, and even when I was married, I was essentially a single parent, and I genuinely believe and understand that I have to be okay in order to be there for my kids. And I, when I get overwhelmed, I know that, you know, in the past I've got very overwhelmed and that's when I become emotionally unregulated. And when I say emotionally unregulated, I mean then I'm prone to snap or to yell or, or to stomp around. And I feel really strongly that that is not good for my children. I mean, yes, kids can see their parents yell and, and have a little tanty and then get on with it. But I don't want my kids to have a mother who is who is um, not okay in herself. Um, and so I, I think it is really important to look after myself so I can be there for them. And what that means for me is, is um, making sure, like I, I know, when, and, and a lot of other people who I interviewed for books did exactly the same thing, but that you get to a point where you don't have enough alone time, where you just feel chaotic or agitated you know, a lot of time is really important for emotional well-being. And so I will make sure that I take myself off into my room, close the door um, and just do something quietly. I will go for walks. Um, with, if, if I do, you know, I go for, as I said, if I go for an hour's walk, if I'm walking with my partner, then I'll have time later in the day to, to be quiet by myself. But most of the time when I walk by myself, I will spend at least half of that time just walking with nothing. And often even when I then put on a podcast after half an hour, I kind of 
I, I find, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm lost in my own thoughts. Um, when I listen to, a, I tend to listen to podcasts and audiobooks when I'm at home doing chores and that kind of distracts me while I have to get chores done. But I think that that thinking time is really important when I'm out walking and almost always in the car. And I, I do do quite a bit of driving, yeah, kids to and fro and, and um, you know, where, whether it's to go to appointments or the, the, um, the shops or whatever. And I almost never have music in my car. I prefer just to sit with my thoughts. I find that's a really productive time. Um and I'm now, it's kind of like with exercising, how I didn't exercise and then now that I exercise regularly, I don't feel okay yeah. without it. Now that I am, I have a kind of a routine of alone time, I don't feel okay without it. And I'm very lucky also that I have a partner who is similar. And so when we do travel together, because um, we don't live together, when we travel together or we spend a lot of time together, we are very good at just saying, right, some, some quiet time. Let's <laughs> do quiet time now. Yeah, I guess that's challenging for others, right, in the sense that if you are... It, it can be confronting if you're with someone or with family or with friends and you say, I need to put, um, I need to have some time to myself because it can be perceived as selfish in a negative way rather than selfless and, and it can sometimes create more dramas. But I guess you'd have to hold strong, right? I think, I think also people perceive it as a rejection. Mm. When it's not a rejection, it's actually just saying I need this for um, to replenish. Yeah. To be the best um, version that I can and, be. And, you know, my kids yeah. all – yeah, yeah. And my kids all do it. Like my kids, particularly my big kids, and you know, they really need time just to be quiet. And, you know, particularly if they've had a big day or they've been working or at school or whatever, they will come home and just be mm. in their rooms. You know, my son's moved out now, but but my, my other two will come home and be like – I. I can't talk right now, mum. You know, I just need to go and have quiet time. And I, so I respect yeah. that. And I know there are parents who, who would perceive that as a rejection. Oh, but, you know, <laughs> you need to come and tell me how your day was and talk. No, I think it's really important to honour that and to say, yes, absolutely. And when they've then recharged, then they can come out and we can have a, have a chat. Kerry, this has, been, this has been beautiful. And my certainly my first proper... I say that with all respect from the previous guests, but my first proper author, and it's been beautiful. <laughs> I really, really appreciate it. Hello. Um, particularly given that I read it and I was like, I was so taken back by it, right? And because it was such a challenging thing for me to to accept and or to do rather, and um, to reach out to you and for you to be so um, warm and uh, and to come on to the show is is a real honor. So thank you. Um, at the end of the show. Oh, it's honestly, it's, it's been terrific. It's At the end great. of the show, um, we ask the, the guests the same five questions and I'll throw them to you. So the first one is the number one tip for people wanting to be more successful in their life. I think that the first step is to actually find out what you genuinely want and you can't do that. Sorry to come back to the same thing, but you can't do that if you don't mm. know yourself. And when you can tap into what you really want for yourself as opposed to what the world or your parents or your partner or what you perceive, you know, um, your colleagues would ever want for you. And once you can really get in touch with that, then that's the first step to actually going and achieving it. Amazing answer. Amazing answer. Um, number one tip for people wanting to be more happy in their life. <laughs> I think, back to what I said earlier, I think focusing on the little moments of joy and particularly in difficult times or um, if you're, you know, you, you're not feeling particularly buoyant or resilient, or um, you're feeling very anxious, just to focus on um, savouring those little moments of pleasure that we all have in our day. And sometimes it's as simple as 
as you know, for me, I really enjoy my morning orange yeah. every morning and my coffee. Like I love those. And I always have those little moments or a little interaction with someone um, that's positive. And I think if, if we can all focus just on building on those, on noticing and appreciating the tiny little moments and focusing less on trying to be happy, I think we'll be much more successful in that quest. I that. Um, a question that I'm really looking forward to asking you, the most recommended or gifted book? given that you're such a prolific reader oh, okay, so, and author. So you've heard of Cheryl Strayed? You've heard of Cheryl Strayed? No. So she wrote, she wrote Into the Wild, which was a book about, but this is not the book I'm recommending. So she wrote a book about called Into the Wild about a, um, basically a solo trick to find herself. But she writes a column or wrote a column for many years called Dear Sugar, which is an advice column. And from that column came a book called Tiny Beautiful Things, which is a collection of her best columns and she I love advice yep. columns um I, I, I've always loved them but often I read them and go oh that's terrible advice <laughs> I would say something different but Cheryl Strayed is all about compassion towards others digging deep and finding compassion even for people who don't feel they deserve it and compassion for herself and she shares a lot of herself and it is truly the most beautiful um, open-hearted, generous book I've ever read, and I tell everybody to read it. And and please, tiny, tiny beautiful, beautiful things by things. Cheryl Strait. And I, I think it's actually now a show. Okay. Yeah, I think it might be a series. So Perfect. it's wonderful. Uh, most influential person in your life, Kerry? Oh gosh, so I've had a lot of people who are very influential in my life who haven't necessarily conveyed the greatest lessons or things that haven't necessarily made me feel good about myself or, or feel content. So I have spent a lot of time trying to undo that. I had a therapist many years ago who really worked with me on my anxiety and on separating my anxiety from myself, you know, the whole CBT thing. And she was incredibly influential on me. And I sort of carry, carry, carried that voice around with me on my shoulder for a long time until I assimilated into mm. myself. Um, these days, it's, so she made a huge difference on me. These days, look, I'm going to say my, my most influential person on myself is me because oh, I always come back to that's me. That's beautiful. Um, and my opinions. But I have, but yeah. it is, but it, it, it really is. Um, and I, I listen to other people's advice and I take it in, but I always, always defer to me. That's so um, inspiring. And um, I now, yeah, and, and I, I think that that is, sometimes we need some help to get mm. there. Um, and I certainly needed help, and I had a th I've had i had two different therapists, but I now am at a point where I can listen and pay attention to what other people and the world says, but always, always, come I come back to myself. Uh, I trust myself now. That's a, that's probably my favourite answer to that question yeah. so far. That's amazing. Um, well, not. <laughs> uh, and then finally, a guest, famous or not, uh, you, you think would be good for us to interview on the show? Look, I'm, I'm not saying you would be able to. No, no that's not, that's not a condition. It's not a conditional. It's just love, shoot for the stars. You know, I'm, I'm generally not one to be like, oh, that person is so inspiring. But Michael J. Fox, I think, is the most inspiring person that I have come across. He was this, you know, fantastic movie star, actor, um, short little guy, yeah. and then had this terrible, terrible diagnosis of Parkinson's when he was very young. I've read his books. He somehow manages. He he stayed successful despite, you know, having Dealing active Parkinson's, yeah. and he found a way to work with that. And he has this attitude 
He's incredibly resilient, incredibly positive, but still realistic, contributes positively to the world in so many ways. And I just honestly, I I would um I would I would have to be there in the studio with okay, you. Okay, I'll, I'll like, hold that to you, you know, then. Just fangirl. I'll hold that to you. If we can get Michael J. Fox, <laughs> you're flying up from Sydney, so it's a Sunshine Coast trip I'm holiday for you as well. Definitely, so. I'll make. I'll be making the tea. <laughs> yeah, uh, Kerry yep. Sackville. So that's my ideal. Yeah, figure. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed <laughs> it. I hope the the audience loves it as well. And the book is The Secret Life of You. And as I said, um, it's it's an incredible read, and especially when you uh, are going starting that journey for yourself or want to look into that journey of um, self-discovery and and um, solitude so Kerry thank you so much honestly it's just it's been a joy that was another episode of the success times happiness podcast I hope you really enjoyed it if you did please let your local bookstore know all about it until next time peace 